0: Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talked with Raghunath about his pilgrimages to India. When we started our conversation, he was brewing a pot of tea and we chatted about that before moving into talking about his pilgrimages.
1: Immune support,
0: echinacea. Okay. Do you add anything to it or you just leave it as is?
1: I'm going as is because it's the least talked about thing in this pandemic. I know I'm supposed to wipe my body down with uh, er, antibacterial soap on a regular basis. I'm supposed to put some mask on that probably has um, formaldehyde. I think it does have formaldehyde on it or some type of mask, um, not, I'm supposed to stay away from people that I love, and um, keep a distance from them, but no one talks about your own responsibility for your immune system, and if I say that, I'm considered a radical Trump supporter, but this is stuff I believed in ever since I was a teenager, that we have responsibility for our immune system, and um,
0: so what are you doing, uh, besides drinking uh, tea to boost your immune system?
1: It, well, there's a lot of things you can do. One thing is you can fast, intermittent fasting, which has become very popular right now. is a great way to stay high on your immune system gain uh, game. You drink hot water or tea for half the day, and eat through a. There's a feeding window when you eat. That that'll be strong for your immune system. Um. Other things you can have like uh, uh, you take warmer foods when it gets colder out that's like a simple thing you get enough rest you don't burn yourself out like that you practice deep breathing that's really good for the alkaline acid balance in the body stress makes you more acidic all right um uh drink fluids you know um uh Too much, for a male, too much sex. Too much sex for a male will actually weaken the immune system. Um, You know, then there's certain things like zinc, vitamin C, you know, that are there. Too much sweets weakens the immune system, raw honey, except for raw honey. Raw honey is one of the better things you could do for your immune system. So those are the basics.
0: I like that, personal responsibility for your own immune system.
1: It's the only thing. that, is nobody talking about this? Am I like, no one's talking about it. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and if you have any like, question about it, you've immediately put into some category as unsafe. Why don't we? Why don't we just talk about like what are people eating? If you really care about safety, how about we like create a whole charge or, hey, let's be careful that we're not eating uh, processed foods or fast foods because, you know, we could have the fast, you know, we, we do get sick and we do have, we have fast sickness or we have like long term sickness where people are dying of obesity or diet related illnesses. Like no one's talking about that. There's only one way to health and that's through. And it's not. And, and, and by the way, and we're about to see the the uh, the, the kickback, the karma of all of this. Depression, people going back to addictive behaviors, deep rooted sadness. Uh, we haven't even seen or re- ready to um, record what's going to go on with children from being behind a screen and not being social. Uh, um, you know, it's like we're taking one, the burden off one shoulder and moving it to another shoulder, and no one's talking about how to actually have some responsibility in it. Anyway, yeah, so it's, it's, a mean- li- it's, it's a little frustrating, especially if, if you've been into natural medicines and natural cures and foraging and plant medicine. All of a sudden now everybody thinks you're some kooky, berserk, um, far right wing. And it's just not tr- true. We have to stay connected with our bodies, with our own personal responsibility for taking care of our bodies and not dependent on like, how can a vaccine save my life? anyway
0: yeah i mean you're talking about uh i mean the existential crisis is is only starting to emerge uh where people uh with you know as you said anxiety depression questioning why we're here Um,
1: suicide yeah it's like real problems yeah coronavirus is a problem so is all these other so are all these other things an economy that's going to collapse that's a real problem I've lost my business this year. But I'm not alone. 60% of the village where I live, they're all shut down. And these are people that have families, have response. It's interesting, everything's shutting down except the banks, they're still collecting. So it's sort of like, what is going on right now? We're in a really weird, problematic place. And we see that when people get desperate, that's when problems really start to happen, when when desperation happens. You see the, the fighting over hand sanitizer at, at, at Rite Aid, you know, a fight breaks out. People, you know, it's forty percent. You know, forty percent um, of the people that are buying guns are new gun owners. You know what I mean? People are like riddled with. We want to talk about our immune system. Fear wrecks the immune system. The very thing, <laughs> the very thing we're trying to protect people from. We're giving them fear. So it's it's a very very. Uh, scary time when people feel like the the earth could just crumble out from underneath you. I guess these are the things, you know, I always speak about anyway in my classes because yoga philosophy is all about um, the world can, the carpet can be pulled out from underneath you at any moment. So it's not supposed to make you depressed or riddled with anxiety or fearful. But it's supposed to make you think about the bigger picture of our life i guess we're tying this into pilgrimage and this is what the whole thing is uh there's a desire to reawaken my spiritual life and i think part of it is understand the material life and and to understand your material life you got to understand which is hard to do because there's like this curtain of illusion that makes you think like material things are going to really fulfill your heart And it's just not worked in my experience, that there's sort of a God-shaped hole in my heart that I perpetually try to fill with other things. Romance, adventure, um, stuff, various types of stuff. Some people have very high-class stuff. Some people have low-grade stuff. But what it is, it helps us forget about our mortality in this world and our... Strong desire to find our pleasure out there. It's sort of um, we we the strong desire to do that keeps us a little frustrated because there's never enough for a god-shaped hole in the heart. It will never it never quite fits. So the theory the theory in Vedic thought or the thoughts of teachings of ancient India is that only spirit will fit that hole in the heart. And we start putting spirit in the hole, then we actually find a deeper connection. We don't need to necessarily run all over the place and consume lots of other stuff. We'll actually be a little bit more content. So there's what there's what the yogis call sadhana. Sadhana means a part of my day I put towards deep spiritual focus and if you're new to it it could be five minutes or 10 minutes or an hour Um, it's a part of my day it's nice to have it in the beginning and at the end when i was younger i was a monk it would be all day long but now with the family with a household um morning time evening time you cap off your day with the spiritual focus morning time because the morning calibrates your day right it's like the first thing you eat in the morning, the first thing you do in the mer- morning, the first thing you read in the morning, it affects the course of your day. and the evening time, it's a nightcap, because the mind wants to go to sort of lethargy and um, whatever, drink a beer, turn on the TV, etc. But the principle is the evening time, cap it off with something high instead of going down low, and then you go to bed high in this fresh in this uh, fresh consciousness. So little parts of the day. You take, this is just for spirit. Then there's a bigger picture. There's parts of a season where you say, you know what? We're going to make, you know, Christians do this too. Hey, Sunday is the day of rest, right? Parts of the week where you can have a little bit deeper of a time. We put aside more day, maybe days of the month in the Vedic calendars. There's uh, special days where you spend a little bit more extra time. And then what we're here to talk about today is times of the year times of the year where you say hey we're gonna block off this amount of time and this is called pilgrimage and pilgrimage what i'm saying is like what i did this morning what i'll do this evening that's pilgrimage of the day then like i said and then you extend it more and more and more and why because it it, it we find it grounds us so that's, that's why we do pilgrimage, or that's why I value pilgrimage, and going on pilgrimage, taking people on pilgrimage. I, I mean, I take people, but now I've got it managed well that I have to be less of an organizer where I can actually experience the pilgrimage myself and not be a therapist for everybody who's freaking out and traveling around in India.
0: So, uh. I'm curious uh, about the first pilgrimage that you went on, and I'm and I'm curious about the word and what it meant to you the first time. Did you have a context for it? Uh, I don't know, kind of like your childhood religion, if you had a religious practice or family religious tradition, uh, but it seems that the pilgrimages that you are now doing are very much tied to your current spiritual practice. So mm. take, take, take us back to the first time that you realized what you were doing was going on a pilgrimage.
1: Um, I've always had like a strong s- spiritual calling from a young age. I grew up Catholic. Um, I sort of like stepped away from this in my teens. I got into music. Um, it was always sort of in the periphery of my mind. I went for about a year to university. And in university, I, I was very into clean living. And I started becoming a vegetarian at a young age. Um, and then I started getting into, uh, I didn't, didn't drink or smoke. Um, and I appreciated spiritual things. So in university, when everything was getting like crazy, because people go crazy and it's their chance to find themselves. I was like, I don't want to be one of uh, these—to me, it it wasn't attractive to be like a a, a college party animal. So I was like, who are spiritual in university? So I, I was a Buddha. I found them very similar in the appreciation of the teachings of the New Testament. And so I joined a Christian club. Because I felt like these guys are not like the animal house type of, you know, uh, National Lampoon's animal house party guys. And they weren't. They were cool. But there was a problem with it. Because as soon as I said, well, you know, you guys are going to love this. Wait till you read these teachings of Kotama Buddha. It's like right in line with everything Jesus says. And it was automatically like uh stone-faced we're not into this this is definitely pushing this is put no this is completely you're off and at that point i realized that it's not going to necessarily be an easy trip my experience my my personal pilgrimage or my quest or my journey home so to speak i'm gonna have to figure out this because i have a much broader understanding of spirit than this group has I'm not putting down all Christians. I still consider myself a Christian in a lot of ways, um, but I really felt like I need to figure this out. So that when I got turned on to Indian thought, the very narrative is that everybody is spirit and they're all on a journey home somehow. And there's different prophets and different teachers and different masters who will come in different traditions throughout the world. And therefore, it's none of your business how people find spirit. Your business is your business. And as far as other paths, you should learn to appreciate them, respect them and cheer them on. And so that was my strong um, attraction to Vedic teachings. Um, And um, so I felt uh, so by the time I hit 22, I was like, I am so ready for this. Uh, I think Jonah knows my background. I was a, I was a musician, a traveling... I was a popular musician in a band that had a significant message, which was we don't drink, we don't smoke, we're uh, vegetarians. And in a punk scene where people can really rally behind you or like write you off as a nutcase, I had both those things. And I really lost interest in it because I felt like I need something... Even though this is a good thing, I feel like those principles of don't drinking, don't smoking, clean, clean, you know, clean mind, clean body. This is like a threshold to something greater. I don't think it was the end all. There was a lot of people who were straight edge. That's what we called it, straight edge. That I means like, I did it. I made it. We don't drink and we don't smoke. It's only because the world has lowered the bar of the quality of existence. Where like um, they'll put anything in their mouth, they'll do anything with their bodies. There's no restrictions, there's no guardrails, and because of that, you know, if I, I don't drink and everybody else is drinking. Well, I think, well, I'm I'm like a prophet now. Um, but big deal. It's like my mom doesn't drink. It doesn't, it doesn't make, necessarily make her a prophet. I felt like there was more refined facets of growth, and that's what I started getting on on my spiritual path and and um and what to speak of the ego and all these you know the eastern teachings really talk about how the ego you can clean up your act but if you've got a massive ego you're at the bottom of the pile here that's the thing that's causing you think your diet's causing you pain you think your body's causing you pain you think your lower back's causing your pain your ego is going to ruin your life and um that was like an energy i had to learn how to like work with and and so uh, when when i was 22 there was a death in my family my father had died i had some material success and it drove me to like this point of realization that there is nothing of this material world that will satisfy my heart there's no woman There's no best friend, there is no community, there is nothing of this world. There's no thing, there's no vehicle, car I could buy, there's no house, there's no ideal situation that will satisfy this God-shaped hole in my heart. And so then I did what, you know, if you read Autobiography of a Yogi or maybe the modern version of that is a book called A Journey Home, um, or uh, so many spiritual quests, these are the things that, Uh, And I I was ready for it, too, because at this time I had read the Gita, I had started to study Ayurvedic medicine. I had deep faith in that very wide-gated culture of Indian thought, and I thought, that's where I want to go. And so that was my first pilgrimage. I was 22. Um, It was right after I got back from a tour with my band. I quit my band, and I bought a one-way ticket for India. And and I wanted to figure it out, how to live like a monk and figure out if i can get rid of all sense gratification where am i going to get my pleasure from how do the monks do it what is that balancing act that you have nothing you can find some happiness it seems like if i give up everything right we hear about people losing everything and we think this is the worst thing that can happen well the monks from traditions all over the world (laughs) are giving up everything, and it's the best thing. So what is it, where are we getting our happiness from? This is what, this was part of my quest. Where are we getting our happiness from? You know, if I'm getting rid of everything, why should I be happy? But sure enough, when I started meeting the monks, I started realizing they don't have anything. Not only do they not have anything, they have like incredibly difficult situations. They live, you know. That was 80, 1988 in India. That was pre-cell phone. It was pre, pre. No one had a cell phone. There was one cell phone, and there was one phone in the village, and it didn't work well. You know, you had to go to it. There was no email. You had to write air. If you're old enough, you can remember airmail with very rice paper, you know, letters, which in India didn't even get delivered sometimes. And then you had like no no internet, and you are left really with no. Creature comforts, you know. Hey, I get I get a little bummed out right now. I, you know, I put a log on the fire. I eat some donuts. I get, you know, get a. There is no creature comforts. You're sleeping on the floor, in a sleeping bag. You're taking these, you know, you know, uh, jailhouse cold, freezing showers, you know, in the in the winter, hot showers in the summer, ridiculously hot. Because it, although there's no central heating, everything's stored in a tank this everything's cement in India you know or marble, which is also freezing and you know you're encouraged to be barefoot, so that's another whole thing you're always barefoot and where is the and you're away from all like you're away from all the comforts that you know where are we supposed to get pleasure from and you know what happens people split people say, I can't do this this is crazy Edward um, celibate I forgot that little got that little point and you know according to Freud that's what's making the whole world run around that pursuit for either the gross sex or the subtle sex what's the subtle sex we talk about girls you know we talk about you know we talk about girls or guys or we, we dress up to impress the opposite sex we go to the gym I mean how many people would actually go to the gym if sex wasn't in the picture at all Oftentimes, I want to go to the gym because I want to look a certain way to appeal to the opposite sex. So when you take sex out of the picture, a lot of times people just get depressed. They're like, well, what do I do now? I was even, you know, getting my nails done or getting my hair done or getting a haircut. We don't even, we, we had to cut off our hair. That's part of it too. You strip away anything until you get to the core and then you're left, can I be happy with this? And it's an incredibly beautiful experiment. And what you're left with is, whatever tradition you're in, that particular path of meditation. You're stripped down to nothing and all you got is your, and, and it'll, it's either going to work for you or you're going to crack. And sometimes people crack and <laughs> sometimes it works, but it's a good experiment, isn't it? Doesn't it sound like a good experiment?
0: Yeah. I mean, to somebody who researches pilgrimage, it sounds like a great experiment. Um, I. So would you have? Would you consider that entire period of time the pilgrimage? Uh, I mean, there's obviously like also a metaphorical pilgrimage internally that's happening in addition to what's happening externally. So, would you say that that all of all of the experiences during that time were part of one pilgrimage?
1: Uh, I mean, I'm sure you could zoom out and zoom in to many degrees. In one sense, my whole life has been a pilgrimage. My life as a monk was a pilgrimage. One day in that life was a pilgrimage. The day I, you know, totally screwed up and went back to material life, that could be, that was like a lesson on the pilgrimage. It it, there's a lot of ways you could zoom into it, you know. I take people on an official for two weeks, you know what I mean? And I call, nowadays, I call that pilgrimage. When I tell my kids, hey, um, who wants to come on October's pilgrimage? They... uh, they, uh actually i guess with children it's sort of different with children cuz children are always sort of going along for the ride um, but because they know it's a pilgrimage they get a little bit more conscious of it as well too they're not even necessarily on their journey home so to speak at least without a, being aware of it but, um, but it is for them as well and if they reflect on their life when they're old men or ladies they'll see yeah when my father used to bring me on pilgrimage that was sort of the a beginning that set a foundation for me. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, so at twenty two, did you ha- did you know what the word pilgrimage meant? Were you um, at the place in your understanding of, of Vedic thought and practice to know what a pilgrimage was, or or did you label it that after you returned?
1: No, that's what I called it. That you did. I called it that. Yeah. Um, I call I, I mean it was everything I labeled it pilgrimage I labeled it the, my renaissance my my resurrection my my my, journey, my spiritual journey my uh, um, my spiritual autobiography I, I had different names for it, but it was definitely now is time to immerse myself in the stuff i 've neglected my whole life, which I think in one sense that 's what a pilgrimage is again for a day, a week, a month, or a couple of weeks a year. It was de- a definitive time. I wasn't interested in seeing the Taj Mahal. I wasn't interested in going to the beaches of South India. I wasn't interested in um, uh, going to see the Gateway of India. You know, it's like going to the Eiffel Tower. You know, I'm not. Who's I'm not interested in crossing off stuff of my bucket list. The bucket list was sort of like, who am I? Why am I here? I've read that these guys say this about it. Let's see if that works. What, what's a, what's a practical way I can apply this? stuff to, to my, to my crazy life and see if I can get some, um, you know, relief.
0: And so at some point, uh, in this journey in your life's pilgrimage, uh, and, and your quest, uh, you went through, uh, what, what would seem like, uh, Probably a pinnacle experience in some way, which is um, taking on a new name, where you went from Ray uh, to Raganath, and I'm and I really, really want to hear about what that, what that income, like the whole thing. Um, how you how you kind of arrived at this place? Was it more of like a spontaneous ritual that happened, or did you prepare and you knew? This time when I go from the United States to India, I am, I am becoming who I am in, in, a, in a transformed way.
1: Um, at least the tradition I'm, I'm in, it's a planned way that you, know, you, you have teachers in your life, the teachers see if you're sincere and sincere, just like probably in any situation, if you're a photography teacher and I say, hey, teach me photography. Well, show up to class. I've got classes every day this week at five o'clock. It's going to cost us so much amount of money. You're going to have to put this much time in for homework. And then, if you're sincere about it, then we'll follow. We can, you know, reassess. So I think there's a teacher trying to see if this kid is sincere. And then and then uh, and then there's um, the student has to be sincere and in, in their endeavors. So at, um, so at a certain point, um, they're sort of a rebirth and with that rebirth comes a re a rename a renaming um um it's entering into your new life and that um is called diksha d-i-k-s-h-a diksha and that means basically that you're sort of like re like the christians will say born again it's your second birth um you have a birth of the body and then you have a birth of your spiritual life and say you know what this is actually who i am and ragunath das means the servant of ram or the servant, the servant of God. And um, you no longer see yourself as, you see yourself as, I'm a spiritual being. And the interesting thing is in that renaming process, you start to re-identify yourself. With, you start to create a new identity. And um, in every good way and every bad way, you got to be careful what you call yourself, right? Because you can call, you know, people call themselves all types of horrible things. They have self-talk, which speaks down to them. I'm, I'm a piece of shit. I'm worthless, I'm, I'm horrible. Or they have positive self-talk or they have spiritual self-talk. And so it's almost like re-identifying yourself as a spiritual being. I'm not just Ram, I'm the servant of Ram. It's cultivating your life. I'm here for a short time. And there's a new narrative, which is the old narrative was, let's see how much stuff I can get. Um, if I accumulate all this stuff and put up all these, um, you know, if I can get this, this thing and these people and create this family and this uh, um, uh, uh, community or uh, society, or, then I'll be safe and happy. And it's a new theory. And the theory is I'm here for a short time. Everything I have in my hands is going to fall through, like trying to grip you know, a waterfall. I can't hold on to anything here. All I'm here to do, all, the only thing that won't get taken away from me is my desire to give love. That's the only thing I have. It, it, the IRS can take away my money. right? The hurricane can take away my home. My wife could leave me. My kids could give me the finger. I have the potential to lose everything in this world what can i keep and that's the desire to give love and that's the only thing that can't be taken away from me unless i choose it right i can learn i mean christ was on a cross and he was praying for those who were crucifying him ram was getting banished to the forest and he was obeying his mother and offering respect to her even though she was the one banishing him so that desire to give love is a very powerful thing when i realize that all i have is some love and all i have is the ability to give it then you realize well this is the new identity this is my new identity this is what i'm going to opt into the old narrative sounds silly fall in love with a bunch of things you're going to have to lose that's the other option it's a sucker's bet fall in love with everything even your own body you're going to have to lose your body can you keep your body no you can't keep your face you can't keep your you can't keep your stuff you can't even keep even if your wife doesn't leave you and your kids don't give you the finger you still can't keep them it's all getting stripped away from us as tolstoy puts by the cruel hands of time so it's not a hindu thought these are like thoughts that all thinkers of time philosophers come to come to um come come to this this tea in the road like what are we here to do just collect things so we have to give them up and to divert ourselves from thinking of what are we actually here to do do i do i go some romantic path and then okay that got foiled let's try a new romance maybe it was the that was the wrong romance or do i go for just adventure is life about it. adventure is a life about having kids and it's just a family is it just to like um, you know who dies with the most toys wins what where are we going with this short life and so we feel like those these are like these are like the genesis of questions. Before I, before I ask any questions in this world, where do I wanna to go to college? What do I wanna be when I grow up? Who do I wanna marry? The real question is, who am I? Who am I in this world? What's the label I'm gonna accept for myself? And what's, the, because once I accept it, then I act according to that label. So in, in the Vedic thought, the label is, there's one label. It's not I'm black, I'm not white. I'm not a boy or girl, right? I'm not even human. Isn't that interesting? That's not one of the choices. In Vedic thought is, I'm a pure spirit soul. And I forgot. And my job is to remember. And that's our journey. I don't know if I I drifted off your question.
0: You did, and I'm going to come back to it. Because I'm, I, so at what age were you when the, when the name, uh, shift occurred. I was uh,
1: about twenty-four or twenty-five.
0: Okay, so is there in in your tradition is there a, is there a ceremony uh, that yeah, that, there's a ceremony. Yeah. So, I, I can you talk more about what happens in the ceremony?
1: Well, it's something that in Vedic rituals, the ceremonies are very similar, be it a wedding or a, uh, a diksha initiation. Or a um, uh, other t- there's other types of rituals that they'll do but they, what they do is they build a sacred fire it's called a uh, Agnihotra or a fire Yagya, uh, um where they build a fire and they call Vishnu or God into the fire and, and the fire is a weird peculiar almost like almost like access point to another realm and by calling Vishnu into the fire, you're, you're making commitments. And it's just like um, you would do in other spiritual traditions. Like you have a bar mitzvah or you have a wedding ceremony. What the idea is you're, you're, you're calling, you're, you're calling um, friends, well-wishers, family members, teachers. You're calling them up and you're doing it in a holy place. And you're doing it in front of God. Um uh, like like where you get married in a church right or you, often people get married in a church or some people don't believe in a church so they say we get married at the at the beach i believe in the beach is my god whatever it is in this tradition you're calling god into the sacred fire and you might do it in a temple perhaps or that becomes a portable not portable but a, a you can set up a fire anywhere and with the appropriate and they have different mantras they chant and it's very beautiful and colorful and in front of God and those very special people that you love you make commitments and commitments are there in all traditions but especially in the Vedic tradition the idea is that commitments help us when times get tough the mind gets weak when we're in a very sober place in our choices we make a commitment and we try to hold to that commitment And this is, I mean, you see this in marriage, you know, you get your friends there, your family's there, you got the priest there, or whomever whomever does the wedding, you're in a, a sacred place, what you consider sacred, and you make promises. The photographer takes the photo, you put that photo on your mantle, and if you've ever been married for more than a month, you know that marriage gets tough but you reflect on this time where you were very sober and very clear-headed and you made that intelligent choice. And those are why we we call them why these times in our life are important to make when we have this sobriety and we make these commitments. Um, And so anyway, that was like an initiation commitment. I'm making a commitment to my spiritual life. Truthfully, the rituals are there to serve the um, the commitment itself. You know, rituals are just rituals, but the substance behind the ritual, that's important. So generally, um, I, I can speak for India because I'm familiar with those rituals. They involve scent, sound, taste, uh, touch. And the, this is what, and, and, and within those, with it's a it's it's you're tying the senses to your mental photograph and they sort of like solidify at, to you to, at a time where there was very very um lucid thinking or clear thinking and uh they stay with you so, that's why we have rituals in everything that's why there's probably why there's rituals in all traditions around the world
0: what do you remember from what, what did, what did the name ceremony? Uh, what did it smell like?
1: It was the smell of a guru or type of incense. Cause the incense is burning very thick in the air and the smell of the fire and the smell of the ghee pouring in the fire and the smell of the grains get and the sound of the grains snapping as you throw the grains into the fire. Um, and the scent of the flower garland I'm wearing, which is, um, uh, 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 you know, a, a jasmine and you know, they all hold me to that place in roses and.
0: What what do you remember? Uh, so you talked about the hearing something pop uh, in the fire. How, what other sounds do you remember?
1: Well, there's a sound of the mantra chanted. There's Vedic mantras, which are very beautiful they're like uh, vedic poetry done in in, in in sanskrit sanskrit meter so that adds not only a a sound vibration a positive or even pa- beyond positive a transcendental sound vibration um, sort of anchoring you to some time, time <laughs> and otherworldly sounds um, just like in the same way if you hear you know speed metal or uh punk rock or hip-hop the sound brings you to different places and when you hear like vedic mantras being chanted they're meant to be sort of like otherworldly almost and so there was you know there a bunch of young children chanting vedic mantras during the ceremony and it's sort of like it transports you to another place
0: So, is the name something that your teachers choose for you or that you choose or is it? uh... Something
1: that the teachers pray for. Okay. And comes to them. In my case, my name actually, Raghunath was not the name of Ram, Ram is uh, one of the most popular manifestations of Vishnu in India. If you say Raghunath in India, people smile because everyone loves Ram and it's such a popular name. But I was named after a little bit lesser known teenage saint that ran away from home even though he was, by today's terms, he was a billionaire from a billionaire family who ran away to join this great prophet and live in the jungle with him and he gave up everything to serve this great prophet and he basically became a a great scholar in the tradition of bhakti yoga, which is what I study. And so I'm named after, great, after a great saint like this. So, servants of great saints like Raghunath.
0: Did you know what the name would be before the ceremony? No.
1: It's a sort of oh. a surprise. And it's sort of like, it almost is like a little bit of an outer body experience. At least for me, it was. I was like, wow, yes, this is this. Uh, yes, I'm, yes, I could, I can do this. This is, this is me. I really felt that way. It was, I felt very, very almost an outer body of experience. I'm not trying to sound, you know, crazy mystical, but it was sort of a crazy mystical experience for me.
0: Well, I mean, I think it even makes sense. Uh, I mean, there are lots of stories like this throughout time. But even um, in pilgrimage studies, we talk about um, the the liminality that occurs during a pilgrimage, where people leave the structure or their identity of what who they were or what was, and they're entering what is to become. And that pilgrimage is the bridge part. Uh, And so, what? That's a
1: great way to put it.
0: Yeah, what you're describing makes complete sense.
1: Well, and it also goes back to that idea of identity. What is my identity? Because I tell you, if you get the wrong label as a child, you can be cemented to a, a psychiatric couch for 35 years, and to work, you know, you get trapped in a box, and it like cuts off a lot of your opportunities and your self worth and you gotta be careful what labels you give yourself or what labels we take on. It's the same thing as the guru, you know, there's this quintessential idea of the um, archetype of guru giving the mantra in the ear of the student, you know, in India. But we get that all the time in America. You get the parents saying, you worthless piece of, we get that a lot. Or you get a teacher say, you're sloppy, you're a mess, you know. Uh, And we develop our identity from these words, from people we've given power to. And so it's very delicate. And the big problem is I accept this as me. And then uh, media encourages me like, you're a guy. This is what guys like. You're a girl. This is how girls should look. This is how girls should dress. If you want to be happy, you're going to need a man or a woman or a woman that looks like this. And it starts to... It starts to prune us into who we should be. And it's 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 very beautiful when that cracks open, when you get that like lychee, which is spiny, and you crack it open and you're like, oh, there's something completely different in here that is sweet and, and, and fragrant. And that is part of like the shedding of the material identity. Now, anti-cult people, they hate this. They're like, yeah, they've given you a new identity and they've given you, but. Yeah, they have. Because who else was giving me the, that identity? Just some idiot like you know third grade teacher or some alcoholic father or mother. Like they were giving me the identity. Why don't you get down on them? How about this identity? I'm a pure spirit soul and I'm here to give love. What a great identity. I don't care who gives me that identity. I want that identity. Try try on that suit of clothes if your present identity is not fitting you. So yeah, you do step into that and a good pilgrimage leader will make you shed that identity. And I, I always explain it like this. Hey, if this thing gets scary, this is a two-week experiment. Look at it as an experiment um, because sometimes people get scared. I mean, I had years of preparation before I moved into an ashram. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know tons, but I knew a lot. I knew what I was getting into a little bit. Um, but some people they go on pilgrimage with me, they're like, yeah, he's a good yoga teacher. He's funny. I wanna go to India. You know, So I always have to give them a, um, generally I give a vetting process to see where they're at. And if they're really not there for a spiritual journey. I talk them out of it. I, I couldn't care less. It's not like a financial bottom line for me that I have to, or a quota. I really want them to have an experience. But truthfully, some people don't want a pilgrimage, you know, and I mean, I I teach advanced yoga asanas, um, but if if they're there for fitness, I'll just say, you know, come to a regular class I do back home. This is like something for people who, you like the stories of India, you're interested in the temples and you're interested in the philosophy, you like the chanting. If you're like that, you know, then you're sort of on a spirit quest, and, and those people get something out of it. If you...
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's scary to go on a pilgrimage. Uh, it, I remember having, about eight years ago, having a conversation with a friend of mine who is a rabbi, and he, he, he posed the question, what is the dark side of pilgrimage? And It was, it was, it was provocative to me. I I, I mean, and I thought a lot about it because I wanted to give it the proper consideration, kind of in the spirit that he was asking. And I realized the dark side of pilgrimage is that a person finds himself or herself. I mean, there is a there is a risk in finding who we really are, in, in discovering that, uh, that we may be completely different from the, the constructs that we think we um, either fit into before or that we have been kind of exploring. And then what happens after that can be disastrous, actually.
1: That's, that's, that's a great point because part of the, the idea of self-realization is you start to analyze your false self and you realize, wow, I'm full of crap. I've been full of crap for my entire life. I've been faking it, I've been putting on a show. It's been a big me show forever. Oh my God, this is so ugly. And so I think the dark side is you're finding who you are and who you're not. And if you're doing it right, you start to cry, you start to break down and that's a beautiful thing and it's scare it's just like when i you know if you look at my house right now it just looks pretty clean until you start to clean it then you got to move the couch and once you move that couch you find uh The kids left a banana under the couch or they left a piece of fruit under the couch or there's all this bunch of garbage under the couch. There's dust bunnies galore, a dust bunny farm underneath the couch. And while I'm moving couches and tables around, someone might come over my house and say, what the hell has happened to your house? Well, I'm cleaning it. And that's part of the cleaning process is you're moving cushions. You're finding stuff that fell in the cushion. It looks grosser than it did when you started. You might zip yourself up pretty well, but we haven't started cleaning house yet. So a real spiritual pilgrimage is gonna make you identify who you are and who the fake you are. And if you do it right, if you clean the house right, you're gonna, trash and dust bunnies are gonna rise up. That's part of the process. This isn't me coming up with it. This is how it's described. They use the example of ghee. When you heat butter slowly, all the, impurity rise, all the impurities rise to the surface, you scrape them off and then you have pure ghee or butter oil. But all those fats have to come to the top first or the impurities and then you scrape it off. So we're in a process of sort of like, this self-realization means, I, there's a real genuine beautiful self, but it's been covered over by my greed, my rage, my lust, my envy, my competition, my anxiety. And I can't even sell who's me anymore. I can't even tell me who's motivated. Uh, yeah, I have some gut feeling to do this. I have some gut feeling not to go there. Well, are you sure it's your gut feeling? Or it just might be your anxiety telling you not to go there. We're mistaking that call of God sometimes due to, to, due to lust. We're mistaking the call of, or the whisper of God with anxiety. We're, you know, we're replacing the whisper of God with um, some greed that I have. And so um all this stuff starts to surface on pilgrimage on our spiritual path and you know according to the yogis that's the goal of yoga it's not to perfect your up dog or to your dropping back to wheel from standing who gives a crap that you could be a you could be in a um a circus for acrobats you know and perfect you know uh perfect contortionism we're here cuz we want who, who who am I? Why am I here? To answer those original questions.
0: So um I I I'm curious about the the post uh the new name. You 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 leave as Ray, you come back as Raghunath into a structure that existed that may not have changed in your absence. Um and so in terms of your own uh, kind of musical uh, direction and career, did this propel you to then form a new band?
1: Yeah, uh, it did, actually. <laughs> it did. I was a, it, it, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it was a, a little extra problematic because I was already famous under the first name. And still, I have people from the old days say, hey, Ray, what's up? You're Ray, hey, Ray, great to hear you from you, Ray. But even my wife, though, my wife knows me as Raganoth. I mean, I've been doing this thing for 30 plus years now. So my mom knows me as Raganoth. My mom knows me as Ray. You know, I think people have known me for a long time. Some people know me for music, so they know me as Ray, because generally I kept the name Ray. There was a period I think I went by the name Raganoth, and then I thought, I'm just going to I'm just going to go by Ray. I think it's too confusing. Um but it but so the, people who knew me wouldn't call me that.
0: The the so the name I mean the name is it certainly represents identity and it's something that people know you your community knows you by you know yourself as um and so the the direction that you went with the band uh Could you, did that feel different than the old Ray?
1: Completely different. How so? Well, well because what does a band have? I mean, music and um, fame and money, these are just sort of energies of the world. And the energies of the world, like electricity is an energy of the world. And you can light up a whole city with electricity, or you can like fry yourself you know if i have a you know an, a person who's like myself who's not really aware of the power of electricity and i if you tell me hey go up that uh telephone pole and try to fix the wire i think it's i could fry myself because i don't know how to handle that energy so i think in in um these yoga paths they teach you okay okay fame money um uh what was the other thing i said fame money and uh Fame, money, uh, popular, I can't remember what I said. Uh, But those, those energies, what are you gonna do with that now? Oh, music, music, what are you gonna do with that now? Well, previously you did it to attract people to you because you feel like I'm making my claim, I'm saying my part, I'm showing people what I got. And it really became all about me. And whenever it's all about us, me, There's always pain related because it means, what to speak of if I get very famous, then it can really go to my head. People that really love me and care about me can be like, hey, Ray, man, you've really changed. You've really, what's the matter with you? It's like we all have an ego. And when, if I find a community to endorse that ego, I'm in bigger pain. I think I should be, yeah, finally people appreciate me. But what happens is the ego gets blown out of proportion. So unless you know how to handle that ego that goes with it, you suffer. So in a spiritual context, you start to think, well, are you here to be the center or are you here to serve the center? And that little simple teaching, it sounds simple, doesn't it? Simple teaching, it saves you from the traps of the ego, of the fame, of the money, of the popularity, etc. Popularity, fame, ego, these things wreck people's lives. They don't it's not like success makes you fortunate. Sometimes success ruins people's lives. It's not like being famous makes you fortunate. Fame sometimes ruins people's lives.
0: So in in the in in forming the new band, then you you shifted the focus became less on you and more on what?
1: Less on me and more at just that am I here to do this for me so you think I'm cooler or am I doing it more as an offering and the idea in bhakti yoga at least is all of our activities are here as an offering all of your good qualities all of your talents all of your thoughts all of your intelligence it's here to offer back to your source that offering Of the self, of all your good qualities back to source. That's called yoga. That's the actual definition of yoga. I reconnect through giving back. I'm not saying this is mine. That's called, that's like severing the hand from the body, it becomes repulsive. But if the hand works with the body, then it becomes perfected.
0: So I've got a question for you uh, because I'm, I. I've watched some of your shows, um, and, and now, and I, and I have learned about your, your MMA background and now your, your, um, existence, um, in the yoga uh, community and then pilgrimage all together. Um, they all have this theme of embodiment of really connecting spiritually with, with the body. Um, in in the moment, and and I'm curious if you saw that clear back from the your very first um, musical experiences and performance experiences forward. Have you seen that thread tie everything together?
1: What do you what are you saying? The thread is embodiment.
0: Yeah, where no,
1: never thought of it like that. It's pretty interesting. I thought the different things I thought that spirituality was the thread, the spiritual quest. Well, I, I of, think
0: yeah, that's definitely that's th- I think that's the th- thread and it's in a particular way. I, I think I mean I'm I as, as I am watching you perform and the physical uh the the physical um, energy that is present um in the shows with you with the with the band with with uh, people who are there to, <clears throat> to be a part of the show. It's very physical um sure. in a way that is it's it's unique.
1: you know it's sort of like uh you, you got a car. Some cars go very fast. some cars carry lots of stuff, some vehicles carry. You know, a Lorry, eighteen wheeler carries a lot. It can't go that fast, but it can carry a lot of stuff. So, the idea is, we get a body. It's got some talents. It's got some handicaps. It's got some strengths. The strengths, the talents, aren't good or bad. It's how you use it. So, the thread for me, I'm a spokesperson. I'm a talker. I'm I'm a showman. I can't change that. That's like I can't change the eighteen wheeler so much. You know, um, you can refine it a little bit, but you can't refine what it is. But you can change the direction of where you drive it, what you what you're loading in the back of it. So to me, I think there's always been a thread, and ideas probably started with self betterment or self improvement or spiritual topics. And I'm just using what I got. You know, I like the idea of fighting. You know, in in a civ- it's fighting in a very civil way. It's it's like it's a it's a, it's an art. It's a martial art. In the same way as painting, it's an art. It's not too, if you're if you're unfamiliar with it, it just looks like two idiots beating the hell out of each other. But it's a, it's actually an incredible art. In the same way there is, a, in the same way as being in a band or speaking between songs or being a public speaker or leading a yoga class. Um, that's, you know, some of the few things I'm good at. And so therefore, they're going to be impregnated with that thought or that thread that's sort of been running through my life. And that would be there if I'm just doing anything. If I'm hanging out at a party talking to people I don't know, it would come out. Why? Because it's sort of part of what I'm into.
0: Yeah. So there was a, an anthropologist named Victor Turner who uh, wrote a lot about pilgrimage. And he he talked about uh, kind of what makes pilgrimage unique as its own uh, phenomenon is this idea of communitas, which is the this th- this thought um, that that we are connecting with the people we're with, but there's no structure. So th- there's like there's no class or rank or race um, in those moments where we're sharing liminality with other people, and and I and I'm wondering if there's similarities um, between your your time in, in a band and the and the shows that you're doing and a pilgrimage.
1: Probably in my most focused moments with a band. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, spiritual power is, spiritual power is spiritual power. And that doesn't have to be performed in a holy place per se. You can do it in your home. You could do it in a ghetto. You could do it in expensive zip code. You could do it in in a beautiful home. You could do it in a shack. You could do it in the forest. Spiritual ritual, spiritual connectedness can happen anywhere. You don't have to be in a church or a synagogue or ashram. You could be in an alley. You could be in prison. So in that sense, my life is like a training to like bring that spirit wherever you go. You bring it into your family life, you bring it into playing with your children. Um, So in that sense, yeah, music can be that. That being said, there's something also very special about these spiritual places because there's like a community of people that go there that you interact with and the places themselves have a type of spiritual potency you can't describe. You can't even understand. It's not even understandable.
0: And so what's that like now for you to be taking people on pilgrimages?
1: What's it like for, say that again? For,
0: for you as a teacher to be taking students on pilgrimages. Is it is it, I mean, you mentioned earlier when we first started that um, you're, you're kind of having to shift and let people experience things on their own, but it's an interesting dynamic, I would think, uh, to be returning to the places that are so significant to you as a pilgrim. And now you're bringing other people, your students to those places.
1: Truthfully, it's my favorite thing I do all year. All, yeah, it's like the, it's the best thing ever. Matter of fact, when I first went on pilgrimage in 1988, I was so inspired that I made a prayer at a holy place that said, when I get older, <laughs> I want to take people to these places to show them what I'm seeing now, because the whole world has no clue what's going on, it, and, and, it's, and it's beautiful to witness, and um, I made that clear prayer without even really thinking about it. And then years later when I started doing pilgrimage, it's like, man, I prayed for this. I like, this was like a a focused prayer. I remember when I made that prayer. And um, for me, it's like the most incredible thing because like I said, to watch a person step through that threshold of, I am, you know, I am Jim from Long Island and I do this and I have a job and this is my family and almost like shed that all. It's such a beautiful thing to witness. And you get to, because I had teachers that were very expert at telling me what to add and what to let go of. And where to turn it up and when to back off. And they were just very expert at teaching me how to, how to act in a holy place. It's not something that you can either do a luxury tour of India, or, and you can't backpack through it and get the same experience. You have to go with a, a Tirta Guru or a Dham Guru. A person who, it's a teacher who shows you how to behave how to think, how to, in the first time I went to the holy place, there was like a little restaurant and I was going to go. And the person who was like teaching me said, don't go there. Don't eat at restaurants. Eat only in the ashram. I was like, well, what's the big deal? It's a big deal because when you eat at the ashram, you speak in an ashram. When you eat in a restaurant, you start to speak people like you're in a restaurant. And it's all about the sounds that come out of our mouth. that are going to start developing your consciousness. And how do you bathe in a holy river? How do you, you know, how do you enter a temple? All those things, if, we, it, it's nice to be led by the hand, because it's, you'll just get, it'll be more effective. If, if like, if, if someone shows you, you know, we'll use photography again, or violin, someone shows you how to use the. If I say, here's a violin, play it. And you just make a noise. And the violin teacher says, no, 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 you got to hold the bow like this. It'll be more effective you got to really press hard on the strings, it'll sound better. If you press too hard, it's going gonna, it's gonna to scratch. you got to put rosin on the bow before you can use it. It's not going to make any sound. you got to make sure it's in tune. So teachers are useful in so many ways. In America, especially in the yoga community, they say, ah, no teacher, no gurus, Be your own guru. That's bull. Who who wants to be their own guru? I know in martial arts, I don't want to be my own guru. I'd much rather have someone tell me what to do and teach me how to do these moves. I mean, just going in there and trying to fight and trying to be my own guru. People are so short-sighted. So, um, on those pilgrimages, it's, it's the most wonderful thing is to watch people go through these transformations, lead them through these things and have them sort of break open, get them to a certain type of high, and then throw them back on the plane and head them home. And then they're left with this feeling of juxtaposing the feeling of, oh man, I have a whole nother world. What just happened to me? And then there's a whole thing of like how to tie this in with your life, how to keep connected, how to, how to, you might not have a life where you could do that 24 seven, but what can you, what's your takeaway from this? And that's what we work with people too. What's your takeaway? What can you bring back to your home, to your family, to your spouse? You know,
0: so, as we're wrapping up, uh, I'd like to hear just final thoughts on what why is pilgrimage um, a unique part of spiritual practice? What happens in a pilgrimage that that either doesn't happen or can't happen in in uh, in a spiritual practice that that um, isn't pilgrimage?
1: There's something about the total 24-hour immersion in a sacred place that's just very powerful. You, nothing can uh, match that. Um, I'm not saying that you can't have a sacred place in an ashram in a in somewhere else, but there has to be certain parameters, again, in how you think, how you speak, what you eat, what you talk about, you know? Um, That is going to start to change the consciousness. I make certain parameters that everybody has to opt into before they start. And one is I'll I'll just share them with you because they're useful in life in general. Matter of fact, I'm writing a book on it now, but it's one is we don't criticize anybody. It's hard to do. Matter of fact, once you say I will not, you'll start to realize how much you do do it. Two, we're tolerant. It's really easy, especially for a Westerner to be intolerant in a third world country or developing countries, but we're going to practice. I'm going to be tolerant. And when I know I'm not, if I know I'm criticizing or intolerant, red flags should come up. You're breaking the contract. Third one is I take no offense. I mean, I'm not going to be offended at the guy next to me if he says something or does something. I'm not going to be offended um, on a regular basis. Some people, that's a huge one. Some people, that's a whole game changer in their life. I'm going to stop taking offense all the time. Number four is we're quick to forgive. If people do offend me, I'm quick to say, uh, or um, uh, I'm, qu- I'm quick to forgive people. I'm quick to, I'm sorry, quick to apologize. That's what I meant to say. Quick to apologize. Like sometimes I offend and I have to be a little bit more conscious when I'm obtuse. And so it says, hey, why'd you do that to me? Instead of giving your defense, you say, hey, you know what, I'm really sorry. I'm quick to apologize. Number five, um, we train ourselves to see good in others. Especially nowadays, this is a great one because the whole world is trying to find out where everybody is wrong and how everybody's off track. And the idea is that in spiritual life, the microscope is on me instead of policing the world. So train. Yourself to see good in other people and then fan that flame by telling them why they you appreciate this good quality. And so that's final one is we're grateful. We're grateful for what we have. We keep a tally of the things that we're grateful for. Those are called the six pillars of bhakti yoga.
0: So uh, where can people hear more about you as a yoga teacher, about what you're doing in the yoga community, and about your pilgrimages that you're taking?
1: Thanks so much. Um, I give a, a, a daily podcast every morning. Um, you can go to anywhere you get podcasts. It's called Wisdom of the Sages. Um, and it is like a been a number one podcast uh, on spirituality and Hinduism. and um, yeah, you can, it's on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you wanna get it. Uh, my website, ragunath.yoga, R A G H U N A T H. Yoga. We have a pilgrimage every year. It always sells out. This one just got pushed back because of COVID. So um, you can check in with my assistant there. It's all on my website. And uh, yeah, we do. and we do a second program. We do a, a 300-hour training in India as well in January it all got pushed back because of COVID. So thanks so much.
0: You just heard Pilgrimages to India, hosted by Dr. Heather Warfield and produced and edited by Jonah Bayer. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook, or by email info at meaningfuljourneys.net or our website www.meaningfuljourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.